Welcome to this week's episode of Quiddity on the Circe Podcast Network, where we engage in the classical spirit of inquiry. I'm your guide, Brandon LeBlanc. Today, I want to take you back to an interview from several years ago between David Kern and Christine Perrin. This is one of my favorite episodes from before I worked for Circe. If you've been around Circe for any length of time, you know that Christine and her husband Christopher are longtime friends of the Institute and founders of Classical Academic Press. Christine Perrin is a published poet and the author of The Art of Poetry. She's also the director of writing at Messiah College and has taught literature and creative writing at John Hopkins University with Gordon College's Orvieto program and through the Pennsylvania Arts Council to students of all ages. In this conversation, she and David discuss reading and teaching poetry. I hope you all benefit from it as much as I have over the years. Okay, Christine, poetry. Poetry. Before, before I ask my first question, can you tell us a little bit about what your role, like what you do in, in the world of poetry? Um, mm-hmm. You're a teacher at Messiah College, is that right? Yes, I teach at Messiah. Um, not just poetry, but um, that was certainly my door into the teaching world. Okay. I actually started teaching when I was in college. I just walked okay. down the street to the local high school in the city of Baltimore and said, can I teach? Because I felt so happy about mm. what I was learning and I wanted to share it with people. Mm. And since then, what I've really found is that the teaching part is what puts a special kind of pressure or atmosphere around a poem, Hmm. um, you can love it by itself. You can memorize it. You can think about it, live your life around it. But when you talk about it with other people and when you gaze at it together with all those intelligences in the room, just people willing to show up, it doesn't have to be brilliant poetry people, you know, Hmm. something happens. It yields to that pressure. Hmm. And I think I, I learned that in college. So anyway, teaching, I teach poetry to college students, but I've taught to lots of ages. Um, When my kids were going to a classical school, every year starting in kindergarten, I volunteered in their classroom. Hmm. And I just went and would teach poetry, you know, and and basically really did it for most of their 13 years in school. Just Um, for the love of it? Yeah. And the love of the kids? (laughs) It started out because I wanted them to love it. Yeah. And I knew they might not get it. Otherwise, I wasn't sure what they would get. But then later, what it turned into was I loved talking about it with minds that were at these different stages, mm. you know. So kindergartners were noticing certain things. And so yeah. I just love the curiosity of exchange. Um, I also uh, write poetry mm. um, and have a couple of people who help me, you know, give me feedback. We argue about things in my poems and their poems so we help each other teach a young writers workshop in the summers at messiah for Mm. ninth through twelfth graders and from time to time have had a chance to teach homeschoolers um one-on-one or one-on-two or you know in smaller groups and i teach my niece who's homeschooled um and lives in egypt we skype every week oh nice nice yeah yeah I also wrote a textbook on it because I so mm. much want people to have access. Um, trying to think. I think that's about my That's all contact. <laughs> so um then there is the textbook is that the one that's available through Classical Academic Press? It is, yes. And what's that called? The Art of Poetry. Okay. So if somebody wants to get their hands on that at the end of the show, they can head over to classicalacademicpress.com. And find yeah. it there. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So I think as this is a good segue to a question about teaching poetry, since you're talking about the different ways that you teach. I've experienced this as a teacher where I love a poem and I want to bring it to my class and I taught juniors and seniors. I want to bring it to those kids and I want to help them love it. Mm. But then there's, there's a lot of anxiety about how to approach that because either you're anxious that you don't know the poem well enough, you don't know the author well enough, you don't know poetry in general well enough, you're not yeah. a good enough teacher. <laughs> um, your kids, or the, a lot of the kids that I was teaching, um, were not, some of them liked poetry more than others, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And then others knew it more than others. But there's a lot of anxiety that can come with teaching a poem that you love. And how do you... First of all, why do you think that teaching poetry, 
lead to that kind of anxiety in a way that maybe teaching a novel doesn't. At least that was the way it was for me. And maybe I, I would think I'm not the only person who feels that way. It's interesting because I also have a lot of anxiety about teaching novels because mm. they're so long and there's so much going on. And I yeah. sometimes it, have trouble knowing how to break them down and give them the time they need and mm. such. But yes, absolutely. I have myself have anxiety for just the reasons that you're describing. I think there's two brands of it. Uh, the one is, I love this. It matters so much to me. I want you to love it. I'm afraid you won't. I'm afraid I'll, you won't love it because of me. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, that's the worst. It's the worst. It's like you want to share something and you get in the way of it. Mm. Um, and actually, I often, that is my prayer in teaching, that I won't get in the way of these things that I love so much, you know, because I don't feel like I'm the master in any way. I feel like the poems are mm. or the literature is. Um, so the other fear is that you won't know something. And... I think both of them are worth dispelling, um, and there are, I think there are some really some good easy ways to dispel that. One is um, just to think about what it means to know in relationship to poetry. I think we've really forgotten that poetry is so much addressing our bodies; it's addressing our hearts. One of the things that we all love about Tolkien is that his characters are always stopping and kind of sounding out their hearts hmm. in order to help them make a decision. My heart tells me, you know, they're often saying things like that. Hmm. That's interesting. And I think um, I would say that in terms of poetry, your heart and your body tell you things that are very, very important, that are the starting point for poems. And if you get too much bound up in those things that are important and can be pleasurable, but are lower order concerns in terms of the poem, they're farther down the line. You know, it's like if you wanted to convince me to like cars, you wouldn't start out by talking about all the different particular ways right. that different right. engines worked. You know, you would start out by saying, well, what colors do you like? And what what shapes do you like? And when did you have a good ride last? And you know what I mean? Those kinds of larger questions that start at the entry point, that start at the gateway, that start at the threshold. Hmm. And so I think everyone's equipped to walk into the threshold of the poem. And if you love a poem, you're even more equipped. And that equipment of love shouldn't be discounted. And I think we're really used to kind of saying, well, I just like this a lot. I don't really know that much about it. But I think liking something a lot, loving something, is a very deep form of knowing and one that can be trusted. Um, and as long as you're not trying to, like, for instance, I'll just give you an example. Emily Dickinson's really hard. She's, she's thorny. She's dense. She's complex. Um, she's obscure. Whenever I start with students with her, I always say to them, let's just see what we can figure out. Let's not worry about what we can't understand because there's so much in Dickinson we can't understand. There's so much I can't understand, you know, and yeah. I have college professor <clears throat> colleagues who won't teach a Dickinson because she's so hard, you know, <clears throat> but that's the wrong approach. The right approach is to say, what can we get? So I think showing up with heart and body. Um, and the first part of that is reading aloud. Um, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. So do, before we talk about reading aloud, which I'm sure we'll talk about a lot, do we need to just think about it as about, about discovery, about um, a form of discovery, um, like discovering little bits and pieces of a mystery, as opposed to thinking about it from a scientific, in a scientific way where there's a, you're trying to identify certain kinds of like laws and is the, so is, is it, instead of looking at it in a scientific fashion, as if it's something that can be dissected, are you suggesting then that we should be looking at it um, as if it's a mystery or a, a journey that we're just, we've learned things as we go one bit at a time? I love that, David. That's a, such a good question. In fact, as you're talking, I'm thinking of sea diving. I wonder if you imagine you know, the search for the poem as a dive, you know, where you go to one level and you go to the next level and you look around and you've got these goggles on and you're breathing 
oxygen, you know, because you can't really breathe that water. Um, I would say that it's not that the scientific doesn't matter at all. But again, that that's much farther down the road and that mm-hmm. you're absolutely right that we begin with poems. We begin in discovery. We begin in immersion. We begin in direct contact. And if we start by saying, what's the rhyme scheme? What's the metaphor? What's the family of images? What's the meter? We begin at the wrong end of inquiry. Hmm. So that there's a you know, it's not that that inquiry doesn't matter. And I, even in Art of Poetry, I teach the elements because it's a really good way to frame your conception of what you're looking for. You do have to know what to look for. And you want to get there eventually because when you love something, you do want to kind of dwell on the particulars and you want to know more particulars. But you have to become attached to it first. Hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. that isn't to say that every single poem you'll always get attached to. You know, there are going to be times as well when, as Lewis says, you know, you begin kind of with the hard labor and your rewards are maybe not the rewards that are inherent to the endeavor. So, for instance, as a teacher, it's very important to be engaging um to make uh, when i have students sometimes i'll have them just memorize the poem before we even talk about it and stand Hmm. up and do motions and i'll be excited about it you know so that they can be rewarded by my response to them or i'll get them to say things that reward each other for being engaged you know so i do think that compensation in the experience is important but the, the compensation that we start with is different than the one that we get to Hmm. later on down the road Hmm. and we do have to start with rewards Hmm. um sometimes the rewards are just how that feels in my ear or Hmm. in my mouth you know like ooh, ooh, i like to say that yeah 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 but i love your question that's a beautiful question it's more of sea diving for a lost trunk of treasure than it is um Hmm. uh raising fish in a hatchery Hmm where you're testing the chemical composition of the water and the food that you're putting in. And, you know, well, I think, you know, one of the metaphors that we sometimes talk about around here is sometimes when you're teaching a novel, for example, or or put it this way, like if you, if you're going to a pond and you want your student or you want to know more about what a bullfrog is like in the swamp, then you probably want to just spend a lot of time around a bullfrog seeing how they live in their environment than taking the bullfrog home and opening it up and looking at its organs. You can, you can do, if you do that, you're going to see what a bullfrog has and what makes up its parts, but that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to know kind of what a bullfrog is inherently, like what makes it being. being yeah. 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 And I mean, <clears throat> I, they're both really valid methods of inquiry, mm-hmm. but, um, but, we start somewhere. We start walking down the country road and having the frog jump on our path. Yeah. And hearing it and touching it and mm. you know shrink, you know shrinking away from it. All those things happen first. Yeah. Um I wouldn't want to meet it first under a knife. I remember wishing that when I grew up, I wished that my brother could teach me science because he ended up studying science and the way he taught it was so much related to our lives and, you know, his own curiosity, his own interest, you know, he would want to look at things and talk about them and say different things that he had learned about them. And I, I just thought, wow, I would have enjoyed that so much more if I had started there Hmm. as opposed to in a textbook. Well, you know, I have a, I have a three-year-old, he's almost four. I feel like he comes up. One of my kids comes up in almost every podcast I record. Um, but I guess that makes sense when most of them are about teaching. Um, but, he, you know, when I watch him just being outside, he, so much of w- what he's doing is, you know, he wants to look at the tomato or the tomato plant in the garden. or he want, He's like sitting there squatting down, looking at a, some roly-poly or chasing some bug around or something like that. And he doesn't really have any interest in you know, opening, I mean, he might pull their legs off, I guess, but you know, he doesn't have any interest in, in he's learning to love them and who, what they are and how they exist just by Mm -hmm. being around them. 
and it's not mm-hmm. he doesn't care so much about the the organs of the mm-hmm. the frog or whatever or the lizard and when he sees a lizard that's that's the end of the next 20 minutes or nothing else is going to happen <laughs> um what skeletal system right you know? yeah but someday he will. Yeah, and he's a lot more likely to want to to know that. It's going to feel like less drudgery if he cares ahead of time already. Yeah. So let's say you are teaching a class. I mean, I know that when you teach a poem, you take a different approach depending on the age of the students and the, the kind of experience and things like that. But let's take kind of a standard class, and let's say you're teaching ninth, just a high school. You're teaching high schoolers. And okay. say you're teaching a poem like uh, Robert Frost after apple picking. Okay. Which is actually one of my favorites. And I think it's one of my favorites to teach. Um, what's the first thing you're going to do when you come into that class that day? Are you going to have them read after apple picking ahead of time? Or are you going to have their experience be with the poem be the first time when you read it together? And, and what's your approach going to be to this poem? And if you're me, you love this poem. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to ruin it for them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, often students come in having read it on their own, but I always encourage them to read it aloud for homework or to get together with each other, you know, to make homework fun and do it with each other. Then I will have them come into class and we'll read it aloud several times. And I tell them things like, your body is the instrument that's playing this poem. And we can hear three of you read it, and it will be different because of the instrument of your body. So, you know, and I, I try to encourage them about reading to, to, to let themselves go. I, I noticed that um, when I started teaching college, that college students um, were very uh, self-conscious about reading aloud. Hmm. Um, my guess is that's not true for homeschooled ninth graders or even classically schooled ninth graders, but yeah. it's very true. It's very common in the world. So reading aloud and trying to get comfortable with that and do that generously and expressively, um, but also in accordance with your own temperament and not necessarily performatively, you know? Yeah. You don't uh, all so need to sound like Laurence Olivier. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And um, then uh, one thing that I will often have people do is is respond at first by just repeating lines or phrases or words that they loved. Hmm. Um, you know, and we can do that after each reading or we can do it at the end of all three. Um, but that's remarkably helpful because you don't have to put together something intelligent yet. You know, all you have to do is respond. And so the pedagogy privileges response, just pure response. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to say the quick thing, you know, that puts it all together. Because people take a while to process poems. And any time that you can give them to do that will help their enjoyment of it, I think. Um, Sometimes you can even have them put it in a commonplace book. You know, you can have them record it communicating to them that this is important. Um, I'll just make a footnote on this. The most successful thing that I have done this year as a teacher of poetry, which was a surprise to me, new thing, was have students, and these are obviously maybe not ninth grade students for their first time with poetry, but students read a book of poems, a slim volume of poems together aloud Hmm. um, in a single sitting going around the circle with the books open and doing this method of responding almost with a oral commonplace. What you understand about a poet at the end of that, you know, after reading a whole book of their poems and immersing in their head and their language and their rhythms is you will be shocked. I mean, David, you should do it with your dad and your family and, you know, Hmm. you'll be amazed by what you know at the end. I mean, you could write the best review of that book that you've ever written. (laughs) Um, And students who have had no exposure to poetry have this happen to them. (laughs) So it just, it tells, it reinforces again for me that just that process of immersing and as much immersion with the ear, with the mouth, um, with repetition, with memory, that's the way in. That's the best thing to do. So I start with as much of that as the class period can stand, because sometimes you don't have as much time as you would like. Right. Um, and then I usually have some 
organized the kinds of questions that I want to ask. If I were homeschooling, I don't know how, you know, and not dealing with a whole group of people that I'm trying to lead, mm-hmm. I might make it more up to them and their questions. I might make that, I might give them a chance to start with, with their questions and not just points of information, but questions for discussion. Uh, I know stopping by woods on a snowy evening so well, um, I know a number of frost poems. I, I know directive well and mm-hmm. birch as well. So I, after apple picking, I know pretty well, but I'm more familiar with the questions I have about those others. So I might say something um, about stopping by woods on a snowy evening. Um, I might start by just asking just a general question about what um, what's the conflict here? You know, what's what's going on? Or a, a larger question like. Who's talking and to whom? Um, or, you know, so those are kind of framing questions that um, give them a, a sort of the wide pegs to put in the ground of what's happening here. Um, or I might say, what's going on with the horse? Um, my little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near, you know. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there's some mistake. Like, why ho- like? The horse seems to have conscious, you know, seems yeah. to be aware in this poem. Why? What's going on? You know, so I might ask those kinds of questions to get the conversation going. And then, um, did you want to interrupt at that point? Well, I was just going to ask, at what point do you start, do you ask questions about um, any kind of narrative that might be happening in the poem? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, so based on after apple picking, for example, there's kind of a clear, I wouldn't, it's not like a, narrative in a traditional sense with a rising action and the climax and all that but mm-hmm. there is obviously something going on and there's there's that's like a narrative that's like a story at what point do you start discussing what what's what like what is actually happening to the poet in the poem almost a paraphrase even right yeah I love your word narrative i think that you know after you've done this uh, direct contact stuff that I've talked about. Asking a question of what the narrative is is a wonderful question to ask. Okay. Um, and the the only thing is, um, sometimes if you go too quickly to the narrative question, people want to kind of characterize the whole thing. Um, particularly, like after apple picking is kind of a difficult poem. Yeah. And so um, they might be trying to right away talk about the theme. And talk about what it's saying yeah. without having gotten dirty, you know? And so if I think that it's a... So for Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening, the narrative is relatively simple. Right. Or Dust Snow, simple narrative. Right. Um, but after apple picking, directive, birches, complex narratives. So with a more complex narrative, I would wait a little bit before asking that overarching trajectory narrative paraphrase kind of question. And I would start maybe... Uh, chronologically um, so that they have to kind of where are we now you know Mm -hmm. or I would start elementally you know as I said like about the voice or about the so it's kind of your judgment about whether or not the students are going to be able if you give them a starting point that's too abstract they might never get into the particulars and build their case or not just their case, but build their understanding. Right. Got it. Okay. Again, I only think that's a problem with after apple picking or with birches or with directive. Yeah. You do. How do you, um, you love that poem. How do you start it? Uh, well, I suppose that does depend on the class, the Mm -hmm. the group of students and when I'm teaching it and that, and that sort of thing. I think one of the things I like about that poem is that the narrative kind of, reveals itself in a way the more you read it because for a lot of students the first time they read it they don't see that immediately or they don't see how it's it's almost like a series of abstract images to them combined interspersed with like actual very that that are i'm trying to think how to say this that are um the yeah and but they're interspersed with there's there's a very tactile sensory thing going on in that poem like the idea of the foot on the, um, there's a foot on a ladder and he doesn't have shoes on and he talks about how he can feel the, the, the bar of the ladder, the imprint of that that's left on his foot after being up on the ladder ap- picking apples all day. So you get that, but the, the narrative kind of reveals itself, I think. So I'm, <clears throat> I think I'm with you. 
I think you kind of affirmed what I was kind of thinking in that I didn't want to get to it too quickly. But then, because I think that sometimes it does kind of, poems like that re- tend to reveal themselves. Yeah, there you go. I'll have it right here. <laughs> um, I think that's a great poem for yeah. teaching students to think poetically and the way metaphor works um, in poems. But I always read that poem out loud a lot, as you said. It's the one that, once, as I was teaching poetry when I got to that one, I kind of didn't know what else to do with it <laughs> but to read yeah. it out loud, you know? Yes. <clears throat> and there was something about it that made me want to teach it, that made me want to introduce it. And it might have just been that I liked it as a reader. And I didn't know a lot. When I first started trying to teach it, I, didn't, I had to do a lot of research on it. I didn't necessarily know a lot about the poem. But there was something that just kind of made it mean something to me. And I, I think it was something that's hard to explain. There's kind of a mystery to why we like certain poems, I think. But I brought it to them. We just read it out loud a lot. And I, a lot of them came away liking it. I think there's some kids that came away not liking it, but I don't know that they were going to like anything that year. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, good point. I mean, I love what you're seeing. I, I'm going to pull it up I, on my phone so we both have it. Okay. I think it's what Frost says regularly in his prose that um, we do really need to learn to think metaphorically. We need to think with metaphor. I mean, in fact, he goes so far as to say at one point, all of thought is metaphor. Yeah. You know, he, as he gets older, he really begins to say, essentially, if you can't think and speak metaphorically and you can't understand how far to take a metaphor and when to, um, you know, say the metaphor can't, the metaphor ends here. The comparison mm-hmm. ends. It's not a good comparison anymore. Yeah. Um, then you're not educated. Mm-hmm. And um, I think one thing that somebody might hear me quote Frost on that and say, oh, gosh, I knew I couldn't do this. But no, his whole point mm-hmm. is get your head into poems and start thinking like that, because it's not something that someone can just teach you propositionally. You have to do it. And that thing that you're saying right now about this poem is you had to do it a lot and you had to do it with the same poem. And the poem kind of led you into itself. Um, the metaphor led you into itself. Yeah. Um, I think what this is, what, what I was trying to say, I think I, is that it's a poem that's got very tactile, sensory, physical metaphors all throughout that when you add them all together, the poem I think is a little confusing because it's when you add them together, they're saying something abstract, which is what I mean, that's what a poem does, but in a way that is very, um, it's not immediately clear. And so you have to spend a lot of time with those metaphors. Some poems, what those, that the abstraction that all those metaphors add up to is more immediately obvious. That's a good point. And here it's less immediately obvious. So if you don't kind of revel in the world of those metaphors, and in this case, he really is, he's creating this little scene. If you don't revel in that scene that those metaphors make up and just kind of really look at them and think about them and try to smell them and feel them and all those kind of things, then it makes it difficult to, uh, to get to and approach that abstraction. And maybe the snowy stopping, what is it? Stopping in the woods. Um, what is the name of that? What is the actual name of that poem? Stopping by woods on a snowy evening. Okay. It's one of those poems that you, everybody knows, but when you actually say the name, I was thinking it might've been something completely different than what is the actual line. I know. But a poem like that, maybe the metaphors create work to an abstraction or add up to an abstraction that is more readily apparent or more easily, more obviously apparent. Maybe I'm completely wrong about that, but. Well, you're seeing a couple things that are, are really interesting to me um, to back up uh, to what you were saying about after apple picking. There's a sense in which this one in particular, it leads you in. Um, yes. It leads you wrong by wrong, so to speak, yeah. um, into its knowledge. And if you try to start, it's fairly impenetrable if you try to start with the end. You know, if you try to start with the abstraction. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of people do. Because you get to the end and then everyone says, wait, what just happened? Right. And so then you start trying to solve that. But it's like you can't solve a crime just by looking at the end of it. Or a math problem. Yeah, that's I mean, true. I just yeah. love what you explained about poetry. That's great, David. That is so perfect because even stopping with what's on a snowy evening where a kindergartner can tell me, um, well, you know, he wants to stay, but he can't. And he's sad about it, you know. 
Um, okay, very simple thing, but yet what we understand about what it feels like to be in that position, which is all our life. How many days do we wake up and feel that conflict about the commitments that we've made and keeping them at some level, you know, whether it's getting to work, staying married, making breakfast, you know, all these things are really hard for us to do. Mm -hmm. And he fleshes out in this full bodied way, what it feels like to feel that thing that whether it's simple, like I want to stay in the woods or complex, like I want to keep my commitment to marriage. We, he, he shows us how to dwell in that. And so it's not really simple. And if you just start with the conclusion, you don't know that the whole poem, and here's what's so interesting about that scientific aspect that we were talking about. If you understand that basic conflict in that poem of pulling in two directions, one is your kind of your, your appetite and one is your commitment, you know, your mind, then you're so thrilled when you begin to see how the rhyme scheme is working, Hmm. because the rhyme scheme has this one outcast sound that becomes the rhyme scheme for the next stanza. And so the sounds of all the rhyming words are exactly what's going on in the heart and mind of the speaker. Hmm. And that's a scientific detail that's incredibly pleasurable, Mm -hmm. but it would be stupid, vacuous, inane, if you didn't first understand and and at some level feel the relationship of the conflict he's describing to your life. But then the other thing that I wanted to say about after apple picking that you reminded me of is that Frost is so much more a lover. He loves symbolism. Mm -hmm. He doesn't ever want to just nail things down directly for us. He wants to be suggestive about a figure that he creates in multiple ways, in multiple directions. And so that's why what you're describing of um, solving it the way you have to solve for a math problem, I mean, not exactly the way, but that sense of you could never just start with the answer. You have to build um, when it's complex. And it would be far too abstract if you just started. Part of that is because of Frost himself. He wants to build the symbolic world for us. He doesn't want us to have access. And he even has that one line in um, Directive about, um, I'm just going to read it because it's so great in reference to this. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I need to memorize that one. I do too. I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> I lose it. You know, I don't keep it going long yeah. enough. He, he says um, at the end of that, I have kept hidden in the instep arch of an old cedar at the waterside. A broken drinking goblet like the grail under a spell so the wrong ones can't find it. That's what he does with his poems. Hmm. He keeps their knowledge under a spell so the wrong ones can't find it. Can you read that one more time? Yeah. I have kept hidden in the instep arch of an old cedar at the waterside a broken drinking goblet like the grail under a spell so the wrong ones can't find it. So he's hid this holy grail, um, this goblet to drink out of and, you know, drink and and in the end it says drink and be beyond confusion. You know, drink. (laughs) uh, It's this beautiful thing. But in any way, in some ways, it's about his poetry. It's about other things, too. But it's about his poetry, just like you're describing. He releases to it. uh, He releases it to us step by step and slowly and image by image and language by language, rhythm by rhythm. And he, he's keeping it under a spell because he doesn't want us to be able to have that kind of access to its abstraction because the whole thing matters. So I love what you're saying about after apple picking. I think you're absolutely just right on. Do you want to get really sunk into the poem itself? We could. (laughs) Should Um, we answer a few questions and then try to demonstrate what we're talking about? I I was going to suggest that, and I know we have a limited amount of time. So I I was going to say... I was going to ask you, one of my questions I have written here was, what tips do you have for helping a poem come alive to a group of students? We've already talked a little, little bit about that. Um, we could talk about the nature of metaphor till we're blue in the face and till the sky's not blue anymore. I, ha- I talked to John Hodges this morning, actually, um, about music, and he was talking about how he's more and more coming to believe that, that music is metaphor. 
and that his understanding of music has grown and evolved and changed as he's begun to think of music as metaphors, you know, uh, harmonies as being metaphor for the Trinity and things like that. Mm. Um, and so that's very higher level stuff as far as music goes. But it's, it's so interesting to have the same. I mean, I would have, you know, I expected to talk about metaphor when talking about poetry, but it's interesting to have both those conversations in the same day in relation to language and music and how, you know, I have my friend Josh Leland, um, who writes for us sometimes in Cersei, and I think you, you, I think mm-hmm. you have met Josh. He always talks about how the, the metaphors by which we see the world determine so much of who we are. The metaphors you think of when you think of education, like how, what metaphors do you use for your classroom? Yeah. Um, because that's going to ter- determine how you teach. What metaphor do you think of in terms of your relationship with your spouse or your kids or your pet yeah. or your, you know, all the metaphors for the way we think of how we interact with each other determine um, so much of how we live our lives. Tell me yours for those two things. Oh, jeez. Um, <laughs> and for marriage or family. Well, Josh and I always talk about, we taught, we taught together, actually. We both taught English to high schoolers and we kind of we tried to cooperate as much as we could in our classes Mm. and when it came to the classroom we talked a lot about how we can't think of our classes as or we don't believe we can think of our classes as a in a kind of more of a business metaphor Um, because if you think of your classes as a business metaphor then you think of your students I mean something has to be a product then right Mm-hmm. And so then the students become either the students or the work of art become the product. I would I would argue that it's the student becomes the product that you're trying to manufacture. And as soon as you begin thinking about your students that way, your relationship with them changes. So I'd say that I would you, you, there's a number of metaphors that you could use for a classroom. I would probably lean towards the idea of, of a farm or something like that, um, something a little more agricultural. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think about that a lot, and I'm not sure that I'm 100% sold on that. But not every element of it has to be exactly a one-to-one correlation for the metaphor to be something meaningful. That's um, a thing. Mine is bees and honey because it's very sweet, mm-hmm. but it takes so much hard work, you know? And you're going to get stung sometimes. <laughs> and you're going to get stung, yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, you're going to have a hard winter and the hive's going to die and, you know, all kinds of things. It's not all sweet. Yeah, that's good. Spoken like a poet. (laughs) (laughs) I I think a lot about the what my metaphor is for 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 family Mm -hmm. um, as a father and as a husband. Mm -hmm. It's it's less seasonal. (laughs) Um, Well, it's seasonal in that this, but the seasons are longer. Like in a school year, you actually go by the seasons, and and the way the seasons change, the actual four seasons, kind of is how you're school year operates. You st- we still operate around a st- very specific seasonal form in our classrooms most of the time. Yeah. Our families aren't the same way. The seasons are longer. The seasons have to do with the kid, kids growing and each going through dis- different seasons of their lives and their experiences and their growth. And, you know, you have good seasons and bad seasons as, yeah. as a couple, as, as a husband and wife, as, you know, you're, the kids, we talk about kids going through phases all the time, right? It's just a phase. <laughs> Hopefully he'll grow out of this phase. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, but I think that the farm metaphor there works well, and maybe I just read too much Wendell Berry, but the farm metaphor still works there. Birthday. Speaking of which, yeah, I was going to say, happy birthday, 81 today. Um, uh, but I think the metaphor still works because you have to be, you have to be patient. There's a lot, you have to plant seeds and you have to water them and you have to wait and you have to pay yeah. attention to them and you have to let them be the plants that they are. Yeah. So I've got, like I said, I, I have two boys and I have to, th- I can, if one of them's, they're not both tomatoes, right? Right. You know, one of them maybe is the cucumber plant and one of them's the tomato and they take a different kind of care. And sometimes yeah. I have, you, you wish that your kids would just one size fits all and you could do the same things. Yeah. I wish that the things that I do for Coulter that help him grow and would also work for Jeremiah. I know. And, uh, sometimes, you know, Jeremiah is a year, he's 14 months younger and he's, there's a lot of ways where he does things a lot better than his older brother, you know, even though he's only two and a half and his older brother's almost four. And I wish those things that he does well, I don't know what we did to make him do those things well. And we didn't do them with Coulter. And so, yeah, it has doesn't have that much to do with us as far as that goes, I imagine. Oh, but, yeah. <clears throat> but I think the what's that <laughs> might have to do with Coulter. Yeah, and having an yeah, and also the younger ones. You know, they interact with each other. They see the younger ones sees things 
sees us interacting with his older brother in a way that the old that the older one didn't have to see exactly. so yeah. but yeah we there's so many uh, that's a that's a very open-ended question you just asked me <laughs> well i think it would be great for our listeners to um ask themselves that question and yeah. ask their families that question and their classrooms um their homeschooled children or whoever is listening because um i agree with josh a hundred percent in some ways the quality of our life is almost um is so largely beholden to the quality of our metaphors. How we conceive of a thing almost is what that thing is. I mean, there are realities outside of our conception. Hmm. But yet, on the other hand, the way we perceive it matters a lot. Yeah. And the way we perceive... I just had a different question about the the different the nature the differences between the words perceive and conceive, but that's a different conversation for a different day. Yeah. But the way we um, conceive or perceive of our relationships in particular, like what are the metaphors for the relationships we have with people who yeah. are important to us, or or especially for whom we have a th- or over whom we have authority, mm. the kind of metaphors we use there, I think, determine a lot about. The, the quality of that relationship and therefore the quality of our lives, as you put it. Or even if we, we lack metaphors, mm. it means we haven't thought about it, mm. you know. Um, that's the other thing I would say just about the pleasure of the poetry classroom is that it's it's so important as you read poems. I just heard from a mother this week who told me that she was one of those people that hated poetry and was, and was afraid of it. She loved music and, and literature, but not poetry. And she... Um, started reading Robert Frost at lunchtime to her kids. And it really changed them. Hmm. Um, And I think I would just say that, for one thing, um, just starting anywhere, starting anywhere and sharing it with anyone (laughs) um, is such a it's such an easy point of entry. And then as you be, as you move forward, you come to share that. So it's not just up to you to love it, but other people latch on to things and you see their pleasure. And, and then as a body of people, a community, you start using that language together. You know, I'm sure that you have certain phrases from after apple picking that you at least say to yourself inside your head. Um, or images that I see. Images, yes. And I understand the world by this language. And I say it with to my kids, you know, and I'll sometimes I won't even remember how to say it without the poem, the image or the language. You know, I'll have to have my child remind me (laughs) what it meant before we started talking through this language. But I, I think that's one of the things it gives us. It gives us a shared vocabulary. It gives us a shared family of images, a shared garden of delight. And we can have access to that even if we aren't super intelligent about that poet or the context or all the elements of poetry or the point in history. Hmm. You can have access without all that. The, the access increases as you increase those circles of knowledge, but you don't need them to begin. Hmm. Hmm. Do you have a few minutes to, to put this into practice or do we need to do that for another show? Oh, no, no, no. Practice is very important. Okay, how do you want to do this? Do you want to choose after apple picking because you love it so much, or do you think we should choose a simpler one? I was going to say maybe we should choose a simpler one, and maybe even one that we're not both, like that neither of us have a ton of knowledge about, so we can go through the process of discovery. Okay. Um, There's one that I haven't spent that much time with called Fireflies in the Garden. It's only six lines. Okay, perfect. Um, I'll read it and then you read it. How about that? Sounds good. Fireflies in the garden. Here come real stars to fill the upper skies. And here on earth come emulating flies that though they never equal stars in size and they never and they were never really stars at heart, achieve at times a very star like start. Only, of course, they can't sustain the part. Hmm. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> that that poem is like a nice glass of wine. Like that's the, that's the 
sensory response that I, I felt like my brain was doing something similar to what you have when you have a really delicious first sip of a really good wine that you have with like a nice meal. That's the same thing my brain was doing. Oh, you're making me wish that that's what we were doing. <laughs> well, I mean, we could pause this and come back and be doing that. All right, I'll read it now. And it's a wine that's easy to like. Yes. I mean, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. You know, pick one. Which one would you pick? It's not some I kind of... Dona Paula. Have you had that one? I don't think so. Okay. I have to admit I'm much more of a... Um, I don't know if I can say this in the air. I'm much more of a like bourbon scotch guy than I am wine. So I'm much more my my expertise is more on that side. The wine is more of a um, mystery to me. <laughs> okay. Which I Basil. actually am kind of okay with. Basil Hayden. Oh, okay. Now you're speaking my language. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's yes. That is a good easy one to like. <laughs> Fireflies in the garden. Here come real stars to fill the upper skies. And here on earth come emulating flies that though they never equal that though they never equal stars in size and they were never really stars at heart achieve at times a very star-like start only of course they can't sustain the part I love the way you read that there was so much personality in your reading <laughs> emphasize different words than I did it's funny to read a poem for the first time after having just heard someone else, because you know a little bit about it, but you haven't actually had to breathe with it or, like, produce the words. So when I heard you reading it, I was thinking, oh, I like that emphasis. I'll probably do it that way. But then when I actually was reading it, my the way I breathe and speak didn't do that. (laughs) Yes. But I loved it because one of the things you did was it's an incredibly dense poem in terms of its sounds and the Mm -hmm. tightness of its sounds. Mm -hmm you know Um, but you broke that up so it didn't sound quite as formal as it is Hmm. Um, and I like that a lot what are some you you mentioned the next thing you typically like to do is talk to talk about favorite lines Mm -hmm. what are a couple lines well there's only a couple lines in the whole thing but (laughs) well um, I love upper skies Um, Mm. I like star-like start. Mm-hmm. How about you? I was struck immediately by the idea of sustaining the part. Yes. <clears throat> and I'm not sure why. It felt like a. It was such a. It felt like a new metaphor at the at the end mm-hmm. for what was going on with the rest of the poem. Um, Absolutely. The, the upper yeah. skies is really good. I mean, I love the upper skies emulating flies rhyme there um mm-hmm. the idea of it imitation kind of surprises you too because you think it's going to be couplets you know with two two yeah. rhymes every two you know every line like skies and flies blah 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 blah, blah. but it's three so skies flies size heart start part and mm. that throws you off a little but it's beautiful because of course he's talking about emulating yeah imitating and so the fact that he sustains the sounds and more sounds emulate each other rather than fewer. There's only two sounds governing the whole poem in terms of those end rhymes. And that just makes a lot of intuitive sense. And that's an example of something that I observe. But you wouldn't need to observe that to know it was happening. Yeah, yeah. No? You kind of feel it before you... I mean, you, you, the only reason you probably went... And, <clears throat> I mean, it's obvious... And it's simple in a sense, and you're trained and have a lot of experience, but there's a certain extent to which I imagine um, you would feel that and then go looking for it. Exactly. I love that. That's a perfect way to describe poetry, David. That's You just summarized in the most elegant phrase what I was taking 10 minutes to say at the beginning. You just said, right, you would feel it and then go look for it? Yeah, you feel it, and then because you feel it, you start, you go look for what you felt, like for why yeah. you felt that. Yes. What do you think of the, there's two things that we both, or I stumbled on two things, you stumbled on one of them. Mm-hmm. I stumbled on the word real at the beginning, for whatever reason, and it might have been I was in a hurry. And then I believe we both stumbled on the, and they were never really stars at heart part, yes. right? The parenthetical there. So I guess my question is, why do you think we stumbled on that? <laughs> this is so, it's such a great question. Because, of course, this is what some, like, very sophisticated literary 
theorists talk about, right? Right. These errors we make are not just errors. They're telling us something. But I think it's so interesting the words that we stumbled on were real and really. Mm -hmm. Mm. And that's the subject of the poem. Right? The subject of the poem is this reality and emulation. The real stars and the fireflies. The fireflies are imitating the real stars. Starlight. And even that word very is another form of really, in a sense. You know, real, um, wearum, you know, truth uh, in that sense. This is, it may be meaningful and it may not. Uh-huh. But I think it's interesting that you have, as you mentioned, you have those first three lines that have the same rhyme and the last three have the same rhyme but the last the third line and the fourth line where the rhyme switches there Mm -hmm. they both have that they were never thing they were never there I don't know if that's that's probably it's gotta mean something that though they never equal stars in size and they were never really stars at heart so that word never kind of bridges those two rhymes I don't don't know what that means, but it's, it's, it's interesting. Interesting because, of course, that, I mean, what you're pointing out is that that's also the moment at which we don't have the reassurance of that sound at the end, right? For the mm. first time in the poem and the last time in the poem, we don't get the ear comfort of two end words that kind of close the deal, right? Right. So that feeling is, there's a little discord there because of our expectation has been set up to expect that closure and the thing that it's talking about is actually there's not as much closure as it might seem and then the same thing is being played out in the rhyme scheme yeah um but it's also interesting like you say that there are other connections i mean there's the word stars and stars never never they they a lot of repetition between those two lines and then of course this parenthetical statement um you know, as if he's saying, well, you know, they were never really stars. You wouldn't know, you know. Yeah. Um, and then he goes back to his more formal statement-like language. A very, achieve at times a very star-like start. Closure. Punctuation. Yeah. End of poem, right? Yeah. No. Then, like you said, the poem opens up into the whole wide world of meaning. It's not just about fireflies and stars anymore on that last line. Yeah, and so you get the first uh, f- five lines, I guess, or one, sen- one sentence. You've got an end stop there, and then you have yeah. the last line as another sentence. Only, of course, they can't sustain the part. Is that a... They achieve a ver- at times, achieve at times. That's an interesting little... Add thing, thing he adds in there at times, right. achieve at times a very star-like start. Yeah, he almost de- deconstructs it, right? He undoes it. He says, yeah. achieve at times, kind of like that parenthetical statement. Yeah. He wants to qualify everything. He's a logician, this guy. <laughs> you know? Only, of course, they can't sustain the part. Do you, do you, feel, like, do you feel like that's a, um, a hopeful or a hopeless ending oh okay can we back up for a minute sure like i think it's really important we're talking about stars and fireflies and you almost can forget that even though the title says fireflies in the garden Mm -hmm. and so i always like to just to remind myself to bring my back myself back into contact with the things themselves so Mm. okay we're in the garden when do fireflies come out july um so well they come out in june but yeah and depending on the year, they're sometimes gone by July, like, 10th. But yeah. this year, they're still around. Yeah. So, hey, it's July. We're in the garden. It's dark. The stars come out at dark. You're sitting back there outside in the humidity, and the stars are out, and then the fireflies are blinking. And the stars are blinking, and the fireflies are blinking. And the fireflies are close to you, and the stars are far away from you. And so I think that that whole setup is so important. Like part of what you were just saying about metaphors that John Hodges was saying, um, that metaphor, he didn't say it quite like this, but I love saying it like this. 
it's discovering the invisible relations hmm. among and between things. Hmm. And Which that, is why the metaphors you use for relationships is... Important. Yeah, important. But see, part of what's so interesting about that is that we think about making a metaphor. I'm going to make the best metaphor. But what that language suggests is actually the whole world is corresponding with itself. In mm. other words, we have stars and we have fireflies. Yeah. And there's a sense in which, I mean, he's making this very metaphysical statement about metaphor and about the world, that the world reproduces, it echoes itself. You know, this beautiful thing. And it's almost as if, you know, like Plato was saying that, that there's this, everything we see is a metaphor for something else. Hmm. And there's an invisible relationship between the whole world and itself. It all makes sense. It's all coherent. It's all beautifully saying the same thing to us over and over again. Um, but it says it in different ways. So that's one thing that I think of. But then the other thing I think of at the end there, in terms of whether or not it's positive, is that to me, because now immediately I'm thinking about our humanity and about the fact that there's something in us that wants to be stars but knows that we're fireflies. We want to be grand. We want to be beautiful. We want to be esoteric and lofty and, you know. And sometimes we might achieve it a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit, just to, at for a, times. For a moment. A star-like start. Yeah. And can't you imagine saying that to somebody? Like now I'm going to say, David, you know, you had a very star-like start that time you did X, you know. <laughs> yeah. That was a star-like start. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, there's something very understanding. There's something very human about that last line hmm. that is seeming to be, to be, compassionate even empathetic to the fact yeah. that we're not stars we're fireflies and if we expect performance star performance um it's going to be hard for us <laughs> yeah i like how you set the scene though because you those first two lines here come you can just see him sitting there or walking or yeah. wherever he is yes here come real stars to fill the upper skies and here on earth come emulating flies and then he gets into the bit about the flies yeah but it yeah i mean it's it's so simple it, but so vivid it is and even as you're reading it i'm remembering that part of what's happening in the poem is that it's happening here come come yeah. you know yeah. he even says come twice they're they're coming out the way they do i mean isn't that exactly what happens with stars and fireflies the way that we perceive them yeah you know they they begin to emerge. Like you see the first one and it's still kind of dusk. And then suddenly it's dark and suddenly you begin seeing all these twinkles, you know, and the stars, likewise, we know that they're not really coming out to fill the upper skies. They're there, but that's how we perceive them coming. Mm. And so it's just such a human angle that yeah. is the mind in process in a sense. And it's, you mentioned the compassion at the end because it is compassionate and the stuff about that though they never equal stars in size and they were never really stars at heart it's not condescending in a sense like he, he it's here come the fly here and here on earth come come emulating flies and he's he's praising them in a sense because they the first time i read it the first time i heard it from you i thought not, not that it was condescending but that it was um that it was kind of he, it was kind of sad in a sense that well, he was that sad that they weren't able to achieve that. Yeah. They weren't able to maintain that, 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 that it's a poem about how all things pass away. Right. And so it's kind of sad in a sense. Yeah. <clears throat> but he, he, you know, even when he says they were never really stars at heart, it, or though they never equal stars in size, I flipped those lines up just there, but um, it's just that they weren't, they didn't equal in size wasn't that they're not valuable. They just, mm -hmm. They're not the same size. Or mm -hmm. they were never really stars at heart. It's not that they weren't valuable. They just, in their, it's interesting that he said they were, he didn't just say they were never really stars. They were never really stars at heart. Something about within the, the heart of these fireflies, they're not stars. Yes. And I wonder, <clears throat> I wonder what he's doing there. That's, the, that's what I'm going to think about for a while. Oh, I love that you're asking that question. I mean, immediately it strikes me that when he says at heart, he's partly saying they didn't aspire mm. to it. 
and partly seeing at nature, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and um, I mean, this is a bigger question, but I'm going to say it just because um, I often get this question of how. At what point do you start over-interpreting a poem? Yeah, you're right. Um, so what I immediately think about is um, the whole concept of theosis, of um, human beings who have a spark of God in them, taking on God and becoming God in the process of participating with God and being close to God. Mm -hmm. um, that Christian concept from the East, I, it suggests that to me. Now, was Frost suggesting that? We don't know. All we know is that he created the groundwork and he created the category. And this is what I mean about him being a symbolic thinker. And I think symbolic thinkers give you a lot of room to fill in the category. So he created that category of, um, of something grand and lofty and high and esoteric and then something small and imitative with a spark of what that big thing has in it. Hmm. Um, and so... My um, particular that is theological, that's filling that category that he created, I'm not suggesting that he was thinking about that at all, but I do think that he made to make room for me to think about it. Mm. So I think it would be wrong to say, well, Frost means, Frost is talking about theosis. He's yeah. probably not. Yeah. But he makes room and he creates categorically and metaphorically room for me to think about that. And I think that's another addendum to what you were saying about how poems think and how metaphors think. They help us think. They open up our brain. And now if I think about it a little more, I'm going to say, well, actually, Theosis is saying something different because Frost is actually saying, no, those are fireflies. Those are stars. They're different. They didn't necessarily want to be the same thing. Um, whereas now, we can get in and, like, talk about all the fine parts of the theological thing, which wouldn't serve what we're doing here. Yeah. But you could make the argument either way that theosis does or does not fit this category. Right. So, so then a great poem, the difference between a great poem and a mediocre poem, yes. is it that, that through the metaphors and through the language, it's opening itself up to be a vehicle for contemplation um, about itself, but also about anything. I love that vehicle of contemplation. And I would just add to that a vehicle of contemplation for many people. And I think that lesser poems, and I put the poems that I write into this category, um, it, only a few people can use them to contemplate. Um, but right. it's one that invites many in. Because it's just particular enough and just universal enough that lots can fit, you mm. know, lots of thought, lots of people, lots yeah. of imaginations can dwell there. And it doesn't have to be a complicated poem to do that. It does not. This is a perfect example. Yeah. There's a, one of my favorite Wendell Berry poems is maybe six lines long. And I've, we had, my wife and I actually had it on our wedding favors. We gave bookmarks out that had it on it. Oh. And so I've thought about so it. I don't know if I thought about it every day, but I think about it all the time and it's very simple, but it's, you know, yeah, it's had things, it's had things in there for me to think about, about marriage and about parenting and about poetry and about life in general for, I don't know what, seven years now. And it doesn't need to be complicated to do that. What's that? Which poem? Oh, it's called Whatever Happens. Okay. I'm writing it down. I'm going to go look it up. <clears throat> I can recite I it for you if you want. I love that you have that blessing. Um... Yeah, recite it for us. All right, see if I get it wrong. I'm going to get it wrong now that I said I can do it. I'm sorry. <clears throat> it goes, um, whatever happens, those who have learned to love one another have made it to the lasting world and will never leave, whatever happens. And so it's a very simple poem, even from a construction standpoint. Yes. It's very simple. And, of course, part of it's being meaningful to me is the, the context in which we came, I came to it and that my wife yeah. and I had it as a part of our wedding and it's a big part of our relationship, but it's also, you know, I can tell it's a good poem because I spent six years thinking about it. Yes. I didn't, I haven't exhausted, I haven't exhausted it. Um, and I spent, you know, I presented it to a class and we talked about it for an hour and didn't even get close to, you know, we, I think we talked about the words, whatever happens for the whole time. That's beautiful. I'm sure that would be so important to Wendell Berry to hear that. 
because um, it's gone beyond him, you know, and that's the hope. That's the idea. And and I would just put a footnote on what you're saying. Um, you're, what people bring to the poem um, matters so much. You know, if, if you're using that poem for your wedding or if you're reading a poem in the midst of dying um, or, you know, that knowledge of your life that you bring is a form of interpretation. Hmm. It's not the only one, mm-hmm. but it's a very valid form of interpretation. Poems are human. Hmm. And I think that's one thing that we also have to let people do. I mean, as I was saying, you have to separate what the poet made and then what you're adding to it, what's helping you, what's your lens. And it's helpful to know the difference between those two things. Yeah. But you don't have to keep your lens out of it. And I think that when we teach poems, we have to let people dream inside them. Hmm. I like it's that. important I like for them to know that they're adding to it. But why not? Is that what it's for? Like, Yeah. Adding to the life of the poem. Thank you for joining us on Quiddity as we refreshed ourselves at Cisterns of Learning dug long ago, drawing from springs too deep for taint. Join us next week for another conversation and be sure to check out the other shows on the Circe Podcast Network.